Back in high school, when I still lived in Washington, D.C. in the U.S., I would go to the orthodontist every week to have him check my braces, or as I used to call them, my grills. I would often end up having some of my braces replaced because I was constantly eating chips and ice. Word of advice, kids? If the orthodontist tells you not to eat hard snacks, don't eat hard snacks. Anyway, DC had a large Latino population, and I thought that the nurse fixing my braces was Latino, until he started chatting with another nurse in Tagalog. Thankfully, my mouth didn't open any wider the moment the nurse turned to me with some sharp looking instruments. Otherwise, I would have ended up like Heath Ledger's Joker. You see, I had this thing where people didn't know I was Filipino. Either they would ask if I was Chinese or Dominican. So I was always surprised to see another Filipino in America. The number of Filipinos working abroad has vastly increased over the years, from 1 million in 2002 to 2 million in 2017. Many come from the lower classes, looking for better opportunities they could not find at home. Nowadays, they are better known as Overseas Filipino Workers, or OFWs. 200 years ago, a group of young Filipinos also traveled to Europe, albeit to study rather than to work. There, they were exposed to new ideas and opportunities that they never would have had access to back home. As a result, these Filipinos would come to have a new perspective of their homeland and its problems. Some would return to the Philippines to try to introduce these new ideas, while others stayed in Europe to use their new opportunities to fight for their people's rights. Their countrymen referred to these young men as ilustrados, or enlightened. It remains to be seen whether the OFWs can truly change the country as folks like Marcelo del Pilar and José Rizal did, but it is undeniable that as soon as they stepped on foreign land for the first time, their world expanded like never before. As the writer Marcel Proust once said, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeing new landscapes, but in having new eyes. In this episode, we will talk about the first wave of native Filipino migrants to Europe and how it happened. We will talk about the conditions in the Philippines and in Spain at the time, as well as introduce some of the first ilustrados. This is Philippine History Z. After the Gavita Mutiny of 1872 and the deportations and exiles that followed, a wave of terror loomed over the Spanish Philippines, with even the slightest hint of dissent suppressed. Even worse, now that the reformist opponents were gone, the friars would be more powerful than ever. They denounced all their enemies as filibusteros, or subversives, to the Spanish military police force, the Guardia Civil, the Civil Guard. First established in Spain in 1844, the Guardia Civil is Spain's oldest national police force, 
and still exists there to this day. Its Philippine branch was first introduced in 1868 and soon grew to have 156 officers and 3,342 men. Although the officers of the Guardia Civil were Spaniards, the grunts were all natives. The soldiers also had the power to arrest anyone based on the slightest suspicion and were likewise prone to corruption, extorting locals. It was the Guardia Civil that arrested the enemies of the friars, torturing them before throwing them into exile. As far as the friars knew, they were invincible, and they had every reason to think so. As Spain became less interested in developing the Philippines, the Spanish colonial government grew more dependent on the friars, seeing them as the only ones that could keep the native majority at bay. Even the town's native leader, the gobernadorcillo, was reduced to a mere butt monkey for the parish priest, who was a friar and the commander of the local Guardia Civil. At the same time, the opening of the Suez Canal created an increasingly large influx of Spaniards arriving in the country, as well as a growing number of Filipinos traveling to Spain to study. Since tuition and travel costs were high, Insulares and Spanish mestizos made up the majority of these Filipinos. Later, they were joined by wealthy Chinese mestizos and members of the native Principalia. However, it was not the first time that non-white Filipinos would be in Europe. Back in 1870, an Indio priest named Faustino José Villafranca published a compilation of letters he wrote on his experiences in Europe including a meeting with Pope Pius IX. Unlike Villafranca, the new generation of Filipino expats was a product of the prosperity brought by the booming export of agricultural products. The regions that profited from this the most were those in fire-owned estates in Bulacan, Cavite, and Laguna. Back in episode 5, we discussed the origins of Philippine agriculture under the Spanish where the friars rented their estates to native elites who then subleased them to sharecroppers or kasama. Eventually, the elite native tenants became rich enough to send their children to study abroad. It helped that the Spanish-Philippine educational system was not exactly the most enviable. In 1880, only 50 towns in the archipelago had schools. Keep in mind, that this was in a country of 9 million people, and that's not even counting the non-Christian tribes. Just like today, the few primary schools that did exist suffered from a lack of teachers, funds, and materials. Many of the teachers were also poorly trained and knew nothing about what they were supposed to teach. If the upper crust in the provinces wanted their children to have a good education, they would have to send them to Manila which had the only universities in the colony. Even then, these colleges came with their own set of problems. Though highly reputed, most of the universities were ran by conservative clergy like the Augustinian friars, who limited courses to theology, philosophy, and a few others. A particular emphasis was placed on conservative Catholic teachings. Rote memorization was king, 
with many students just memorizing their lessons without truly understanding them. Although there were a few exceptions like the more liberal Jesuit-run schools, such as the Ateneo Municipal. Most students could only aspire to become priests or lawyers, although there were a couple of art schools. It's no surprise that once they could afford it, rich native and mestizo families started sending their sons to Europe, where the schools far surpassed those back home. Spanish was also not taught in most of the local schools. Back in episode 2, I talked about how the Spanish friars decided to learn the local languages instead of teaching Spanish due to their low numbers, and how over time, they became unwilling to teach the native Spanish. Centuries later, the friars would face both the loss of Spain's colonies in South America and the church's diminishing power in an increasingly secular Europe. Now, there was no way the friars were going to let just any book find its way into the hands of Spanish-speaking Indios, lest the natives learn such dangerous and terrifying ideas like freedom of speech or the separation of church and state. Aside from traditional Catholicism, a defining characteristic of Philippine education under the Spaniards was teaching the Indio that Spain was the greatest country in the world and that it was Spain which introduced progress and civilization to the heathen Indios. With Spain being placed on such a high pedestal, it was no surprise that many rich families sent their children abroad, despite the high costs and the friars' efforts to prevent them from going, fearing their exposure to Western liberalism. So what kind of Spain did the newcomers see when they first arrived there? We already discussed the bipolar nature of Spanish politics in the early to mid-19th century in episode 5, with the right-wing monarchists constantly battling the left-wing liberals. In 1874, after flirting with the Republic followed by more unrest and conflict, Spain restored the crown to the House of Bourbon, which has remained the Spanish royal family to this day. The architect of the new government was Antonio Canovas del Castillo, the prime mover of the Bourbon Restoration. The two major parties were the center-right conservative party run by Canovas and the center-left liberal party led by Praxides Mateo Sagasta. On the far right, you had the ultra-traditionalist absolutist Carlos, who supported Carlos VIII's claim to the throne. On the far left, you had the Republicans, who absolutely wanted to do away with the monarchy. An admirer of the British parliamentary system, Canovas envisioned a political system that would come to be known as Turnism, where the two major parties took turns in controlling the government, although some seats in the Cortes were reserved for the radicals to have token representation. When things went south for the conservatives, they ceded power to the liberals with little complaint, and vice versa. Under this arrangement, Sagasta and Canovas essentially took turns being prime minister until they died. Corruption remained a severe problem in the Spanish government. The spoiled system was the name of the game, as officials were chosen based on favoritism and not merit. Within their own respective terms, both Canovas and Sagasta reorganized their cabinets two or three times. 
the government also struggled to maintain a balance between respecting the separation of church and state and getting the support of conservative Catholics. Just like the church in the Philippines, the Spanish Catholic Church sought to prevent the promotion of liberal ideas in Spanish society, despite the government under Sagasta promoting rights such as freedom of speech. Though at times the government was able to accommodate the church's wishes, this only inflamed anti-clericalism among other sectors of Spanish society. As for the quality of education in 1880 Spain, although it had improved considerably since the earlier part of the century, it was still abysmal. A large segment of the population was illiterate, and primary and secondary schools were few and far between. While Spanish universities were able to resist the church's efforts at banning certain ideas, they still fell far behind the rest of Europe's schools. This was the Spain that the natives and Chinese mestizos found when they started arriving in the late 1800s. Imagine growing up always being told that Spain was the best and that no other country could match her. That Spain was this tall, mighty tree that no axe could cut, only to discover when you actually went there that there were failing schools and corrupt officials, just like home. The disappointment would make your jaw drop, but at the same time, you also gained a new perspective of your homeland and people. Such experiences would help create a new nationalist movement that would characterize the Filipino community in Europe in the late 19th century. This did not mean that the Filipinos were all united in their sentiments. In fact, there was a certain racial divide among the emigres. Many insulares and Spanish mestizos saw themselves as Spanish first and foremost, and were able to move up the ranks in the military and government. The best example of these was Marcelo Ascarga Palmero, who was born in Manila in 1832. He would eventually become a top-ranking general in the Spanish army before pursuing a political career, serving as both senator and minister of war. Nevertheless, despite all these divisions, even at the beginning, all of the emigres shared a certain kind of feeling, one that could only come from being born in the Philippines. As the Filipino community grew in Spain, it began to make its presence felt. In 1881, during one of Sagasta's liberal regimes, Filipinos in Spain celebrated as the hated tobacco monopoly was finally abolished. During a banquet held to celebrate the abolition, a young medical student named Graciano Lopez Jaina delivered a speech thanking Spain for bringing progress and civilization to the Philippines. This was immediately followed in 1882 by the founding of the first Filipino organization in Madrid, the Circulo Hispano-Filipino, led by the insular Juan Ataide. The Filipinos were here, and they were ready to show the world who they were and what they were capable of. Before we wrap up this episode, I'll introduce two non-white Filipinos who would make a name for themselves in Spain before 1880. 
The first was Pedro Paterno, a Chinese mestizo born in Santa Cruz, Manila on February 27, 1857. His father, Maximo, was a member of the Reformist Committee who was among those exiled to the Marianas after the Cavite Mutiny. One of the wealthiest Filipinos in Spain, the flamboyant Pedro became a prominent fixture in Spanish high society, hosting parties at his house. His guests included some of the who's who in Spain's literary and art communities, including the award-winning Spanish writer José Zorilla. In 1880, Paterno published the poetry book Sampaguitas, which became the first poetry book to be published by a native Filipino in Europe. He was also the organizer of the banquet celebrating the end of the tobacco monopoly. He also wrote books on Philippine history and culture, as well as Ninay, the first novel to be written by a Filipino of native descent. Obsessed with joining Spanish intellectual and economic elite circles, Paterno boasted of having connections with royalty. In his historiographical works, He theorized that before the Spaniards came, the Philippines had a great civilization that paralleled its European counterparts, like ancient Rome. It wasn't surprising then that Paterno's antics embarrassed his fellow Filipinos. He bragged to everyone that he was a descendant of a pre-Hispanic noble called the Prince of Luzon, also known as the Great Maginoo, and even went around Madrid in a carriage with his own coat of arms. If you check out the link on Paterno's life in this episode's show notes, you will get to see a photo of him wearing some kind of white Pope-like robe and carrying what appears to be a scepter, but really looks more like a feather duster. Paterno also had a penchant for looking down on many of his fellow Filipino expats who were supposedly not as assimilated as himself. This was a time when Spain was very status-conscious, where state patronage and connections were important to get any kind of recognition. Nevertheless, he still patronized native Filipino artists like the painters Juan Luna and Felix Resurrección Hidalgo, who were gaining a reputation in Spain. Although Paterno was a friend of the nationalists, he distanced himself from them due to their more radical assimilationist activities. This is pretty much all I could say about Paterno at the moment, but this won't be the last we'll see of him, as Paterno would play a very important yet very controversial role in Philippine history. The second Filipino expat is a guy who does not get the recognition he deserves, Gregorio Sancianco. Born in 1851 to a Chinese mestizo family, Sancianco was a member of the liberal student youth during the De La Torre administration. Sancianco was lucky enough to have left for Madrid shortly after the Cavite mutiny, escaping Izquierdo's persecution. In Spain, he earned a doctorate in civil and canon law. In 1881, Sancianco wrote and published a book called Progreso de Filipinas, Progress in the Philippines, 
the first economic study on the Philippines by a native Filipino because Chinese mestizos were also considered natives. The book explores in depth the tribute system and its problems, as well as the colonial government's corruption and misappropriation of funds. For example, Sancianco calls out the Spanish government for spending more on the salaries of officials and government employees than roads and infrastructure and education. Though primarily aimed at the Spanish government, the book was also dedicated to the native Filipino people, with Sancianco lamenting their inability to read it since most of them could not understand Spanish. Most importantly, he believed that if the Philippines was part of the Spanish nation, it should be treated as such, with all Filipinos enjoying the same rights as those in the peninsula. Later nationalist campaigns would adopt similar assimilationist tactics as they called for reforms. Sancianco's book also established continuity with the 1869-1872 reformist movements when he called for the restoration of the reformist committees formed by De La Torre, expressing nostalgia at the new rights and liberties that the colony enjoyed before Izquierdo's repressive regime. This will be the only time we will get to discuss Sancianco, so I'll just go ahead and describe what happens in the remainder of his life. In 1884, he returned to the Philippines, where he was arrested for his alleged complicity in an uprising in Pangasinan. After his release, he served as a judge in Pangasinan and Nueva Ecija, where he died on November 17, 1897, just as the revolution reached the province. Though it's hard to state the impact of Sancianco's book as there's no evidence of its circulation in the Philippines, it did influence some later nationalists, with José Rizal citing it in his works. Ultimately, Progreso de Filipinas is probably one of the most important primary sources on the Spanish era that you could find, and Sancianco deserves a lot more credit for it. Although Sancianco and Paterno were able to make a name for themselves in Europe and break some ground for the Filipinos, it would be the next generation of ilustrados who would truly drive the wheels of nationalism as they campaigned relentlessly for the dignity and rights of their people. At the forefront of this new generation was a young native Filipino from the town of Calamba in the province of Laguna, José Rizal y Mercado. This is Philippine History Z, a podcast hosted by me, Eman Lavinia, with Jose Ampil as producer and Marco Revilla as associate producer. Music for this episode is by Kevin McLeod, Rafael Crux, Music L Files, and Alexander Nakarada, with sound effects from freesound.org. For a full list of music and sound credits, as well as the source of this episode, check out the show notes on the podcast official site philippinehistoryz.buzzsprout.com Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PZ Podcast and on Instagram at philippinehistoryzofficial. On the next episode of Philippine History Z, we will finally introduce Jose Rizal himself, going over his life from his early years to his arrival in Europe. 
Once again, this is Philippine History Z. See you in the next chapter.